Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with David Byrd. At 25, David was living a happy, healthy life, traveling around the world as a young professional. He was stand-up paddleboarding with his dad on a family vacation in Hawaii when he was attacked by a 12-foot shark. This dramatic accident left David an amputee and the patient of countless surgeries and months of recovery. It's been a year and a half, and for the first time, he's speaking publicly about his memories of the attack, the conversation he had with his dad in the water that day, why he wasn't afraid of dying, and how he considers himself to be an incredibly lucky person. Here's today's interview with the inspiring David Byrd. David, thank you for joining us on All the Wiser. Thanks for having me. I want to dig right in to something extraordinary that happened to you last year, the day you were attacked by a shark on vacation in Hawaii. Can you set the stage of that day, sort of, A, where you were in your life at that time and place, and what you remember about the morning leading up to the accident? It was the day before Easter, so I just come back from a long business trip in Europe. I flew from there directly to Hawaii to kind of have Easter with my parents and my sister. And uh, and one of our favorite things to do there is to go stand up paddleboarding or general surfing, any kind of like water sports activities. This was probably 9 a.m. My dad and I decided to go for a paddle. And there's a couple of really beautiful white sand beaches along this coastline. (laughs) This was just a sunny day at around 9 a.m. like any other day uh, that we had gone and done this. You're in the water, beautiful beach and setting. How long are you on the paddleboard before the attack? Oh, probably less than 30 minutes. We had just rounded the point and something hit the back of my board really hard. So the board went shooting forward and I went flying backwards and fell into the water I didn't really know what it was, but I'm with my dad. He's paddling kind of a little bit behind me. Uh, and so he yells shark because he can see what just happened. And so I then uh, basically climb onto the front of his board uh, and it happened pretty quickly. So everything's out of the water, except my right leg is still um, not yet on the board. And the shark actually came from below and uh, my leg went like down its throat and we both got knocked off the board. And so then my leg's like all the way down the shark's throat and it's kind of dragging me and pushing me forward. And so 
I think I'd read in somewhere that you're supposed to like punch the shark, um, which it turns out if you can punch a shark on the nose, that's probably helpful, but the nose are right next to the teeth. So I think I punched a shark like right in the teeth. So then my hand is like down its throat and my leg is down its throat. And at this point I'm like, okay, this is like, I'm dead. Like there's no coming back from this. Um, And my dad is actually there. He's back on his board at this point. And he is like using his paddle and he's just whacking the shark. Um, Like he's hitting it as hard as he can, kind of like tomahawk style um, to try to get the shark to, you know, stop. And this, this all happened pretty quickly, but the shark basically is like flailing its head kind of back and forth and kind of thrashing. And uh, my leg actually broke off. So then I was no longer in the shark's mouth, but I was like completely missing my leg. And I looked down, I'm in this water that's like a very, very dark red, like a purple, dark purple. Uh, And my leg is gone. My hand was like basically cut from the wrist on both sides. And so you could look down and see the bone and I'm not able to really move it. And it was weird because I wasn't in a lot of pain because you're just in so much shock and you have so much adrenaline, but I was just kind of floating there on my back um, thinking that I was like definitely going to die. So there's minimal physical pain. What is your emotional experience at the time? What do you, what, what, what are you thinking? I was trying to keep calm, which is hard to do, but I just was, trying to keep extremely, uh, extremely calm and not, you know, I I knew that if I like my heart rate went up and I was going to pump blood faster and going to die faster. So I tried to like not really move and just float on my back. Um, and then at the same time I was pretty sure I was going to die. And so I was having a conversation with my dad, um, just kind of thanking him for, you know, everything he'd done. He'd you know, I told him that I loved him and, and thank you. And, um, you know, I, I think I felt at, at one point, I think I felt like, okay with dying. I think I felt I was looking back up at this like beautiful mountain volcano and this beautiful coastline and it's a clear day. And, uh, I felt kind of okay with it. I think it also crossed my mind that this was almost the exact place where like my grandparents' ashes had been spread. Um, and so it was, it felt like a peaceful while unfortunate, but peaceful place to die. And I know your dad obviously was talking back to you and you shared some of his words and sentiments, which I think is beautiful. So go a little deeper into the conversation you were having with your dad. Yeah, he, he was telling me it was going to be all right. He was, he was adamant that I was going to make it. Um, You know, he, he really felt that he just kept saying, you know, I love you too. You're going to make it, you know, you're, it's going to be fine. Um, your parents do this, but I was heavily discounting this because, you know, parents always tell you it's going to be fine. Um, so, but, but, you know, he, he basically told me that he was proud of me that, you know, like it it was one of those kinds of conversations and it was, it was very emotional. And so that, that probably, that probably went on for, I don't know, five minutes or so. Uh, and then, the guys who work on the beach uh, had paddled out in a canoe because they had seen it happen. They must have seen it happen kind of right as we fell off the boards. Then two of them picked me up by my shoulders into the canoe and they realized that my leg was missing, that my hand was kind of severed, but still on. And they started taking off their shirts and, you know, trying to use them as tourniquets and then paddled really quickly 
tried to paddle me really quickly back in, uh, probably, I don't know, 150, 200 yards or so. And my dad, they had to leave my dad there. So I think one of them felt bad about this and was like yelling, you know, I'm sorry, we have to leave you here. Uh, because we have to get him in as soon as possible. And my dad at this point wasn't, you know, wasn't hurt. He hadn't been bit or anything. So, um, was the shark still present? I mean, could, could people see anything? Was it circling? Yeah. So the shark was definitely still circling and I was on the boat at this point, but my dad tells me that because there's so much blood in the water that the shark was still circling there. And then the jet ski like picked up my, uh, my dad. And so they, they get you to the beach. What happens at the beach? So <laughs> one, like I'm, I'm still sure I'm going to die. I felt like really bad for the guys who had to like, I, I knew some of them before this. And so I felt bad as like, Oh, this is going to be really traumatic. Like you pick up this guy, you're at work. That's at this nice beach. And you like pick up this guy and like, he's going to die in your canoe as you're paddling him in. And then when I got to the beach, I was like, oh, well, <laughs> there's like little kids and families and stuff on this beach who like one of the kids I remember like making eye contact was just terrified. Like it was like he had never it's a terrifying sight for anyone to see. But if you're like a 10 year old kid, it's like particularly terrifying. And so there was a, a paramedic who works at the fire department who was off duty and he was training on the beach. And so somebody who works there knew him and said, hey, you know, this is happening. Can you help? And so he took over, like he used surfboard leashes as tourniquets. They got a first aid kit. They were using towels to try to like compress and stop the bleeding. Uh, they loaded me from the canoe into the back of like a, it's called a mule, but it's like an off-road golf cart essentially. And then they had called 911 and Andy, this paramedic knew that there was a helicopter like already ahead. He had seen the search and rescue helicopter ahead and he was in the area apparently looking for hikers. Again, I was super ridiculously lucky. It took almost no time to get there. There's a golf course right next to the beach. So they, on this mule, drove me to one of the golf holes that was like wide enough to land a helicopter and flat enough to land a helicopter. Uh, and the whole time, at this point, like the pain had set in. Like once I'm on the beach and they apply tourniquets, like all of the, all of the pain is like really, really intense. Um, it basically feels so a tourniquet is just like they're wrapping this surfboard leash to try to cut off the blood. So you feel extreme pain where it's like pinching you, but then everything that's after that just feels like it's on fire. So that whole time I'm in like extreme pain and they're just yelling at me. <laughs> Andy kept yelling at me, keep your eyes open and breathe. And so the only thought at this point that's going through my mind for however long this is and the whole time in the helicopter is to just keep my eyes open and breathe. And I kept like fading away you know, it feels like everything's very like static, like you're about to faint. And so I knew I just had to like keep my eyes open and breathe. And this, this whole point, you shared with us sort of where you were emotionally and to some extent in, in a place of comfort and peace with dying. Yeah. Both on the beach and in the water. Does that change at any point when you're lying there on the golf course, when you're in the chopper? Yeah, my attitude changed once I got to the helicopter. The guy who was in the helicopter made a comment to me, which wasn't particularly helpful. I mean, maybe it ended up being helpful, but he said, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. This is really bad. You're probably not going to make it. And so then at that point, I was like, I'm going to prove this guy wrong. 
I'm just going to keep my eyes open and breathe and prove this guy wrong. And at this point, there's oxygen. Uh, and he said, you know, he couldn't give me any pain medication because, uh, like, he was worried that was going to lower my blood pressure. And then I was definitely going to become unconscious. And I kept feeling like I was going to, you know, feeling like I was going to uh, fall asleep and, and die. But I, like, kept pushing through for that helicopter ride. And I think it was probably 15, 20-minute helicopter ride. So you get to the hospital. What happens next? You go through the ambulance, you know, ambulance room doors, basically off this helicopter, and there were like a million doctors and nurses, and uh, you know they put in blood, like they put in an IV. There's like a million cords and stuff flying everywhere, and a million doctors all kind of in this frantic thing, and then they're prepping me for surgery, and also my parents at this point had driven to the hospital and met me there. And so then I saw my mom and my dad. Uh, and so, you know, they were like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. You're going to go into surgery. And so I actually felt okay at that point. I felt like, well, you know, there's, it's out of my hands. There's nothing I can do. I've made it this far. And if I'm in a hospital, this is like the best place to be in this scenario. So. Your parents arrive and they're walking in. What do you remember about seeing them and especially now your mom for the first time? My mom looked devastated. Like I think my dad had sugarcoated to my mom what had actually happened. And later when talking about it, he admitted that he said, oh yeah, it was a shark attack, but like, don't worry. It's not that big of a deal. He didn't mention like the leg missing part or like the hand completely messed up part or that I was like as white as a ghost because I'd lost a ton of blood. And so it wasn't until my mom saw me that I think she knew how bad it was. And my dad was a complete basket case because he knew how bad it was this whole time. He just left out some small details. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think my mom was like, at that point, freaking out. But but in the way that parents do, where they're like, it's going to be okay. And then you know that like they don't even think that. Yeah, because the love and the strength they know they have to muster overrides their their own fear, which is incredible. Absolutely. My dad sort of described... I think in many ways, like this is emotionally more difficult for my dad because he had to like watch it happen. It was like a very extreme thing to watch that happen to your your kid. And then, you know, at this point in the hospital, my mom hadn't properly been warned. And so I watched her like face kind of go through that. Um, you know, I, I saw her emotionally go through that immediately. You go into surgery. What do you remember about waking up? So the first surgery they did was, I want to say, like a seven-hour surgery, and it was to basically piece together my hand. So most of the tendons and nerves had been severed, and so there was a great hand surgeon uh, in Hawaii who had like trained at Walter Reed and been in the Navy and pieced together all sorts of blown-up hands, and she... Um, you know, piecing together nerves is like, it's been described to me as like sewing together tissue paper and you do it like under a microscope. Uh, and today, like I have pretty much full function of my hand. I have some really crazy scars, but I can, for the most part, use my hand and I can feel it again. And at the same time, they did like what they call like a guillotine amputation where my leg was missing. And, um, there was a issue where I didn't have enough bone so if you're an amputee, your prognosis is better if you can keep your knee. And so at this point, I still had my knee, but I had almost no tissue and a very short bone that was like six centimeters. And I ended up at University of Washington, where they then would try to do this surgery to save my knee. You land 
at an incredible hospital. What are the days and weeks that followed? So I think I was there for 16 days. So relatively not not that long of a time. There's an amazing surgeon at University of Washington. And he said, you know, hey, we can do this the, the easy way or the hard way. And the the easy way is going to be easy at first, but then probably hard for the rest of your life. And the hard way is going to be really, really hard at first. And then it'll probably make things easier for the rest of your life. And so I said, all right, let's do it the hard way. And so he's like, all right. And uh, I had a surgery where it was 10 plus hours long. And they, the goal of the surgery was to basically take tissue from other parts of my body and rebuild below the knee. So I would have enough there to be able to wear a prosthesis and keep my knee. And so they took my entire left lap muscle out of my back. They took most of the skin from my left thigh as a skin graft and they reattached you know, the, the back muscle to my leg and got to attach the blood supply and then attach the skin. Um, and then, you know, basically that was like that and had to heal and not be rejected. You're in a ton of pain, like my back, my whole leg where they took the skin graft, my other leg where they like attached everything. My hand at this point is still in a lot of pain because I, you know, only had that surgery for less than a week. And I'm like laying there and they put in this little they put in this little doppler which is like a microphone next to a blood vessel and it makes like a white noise machine kind of sound and if that like stops at all it means the blood between like my body and the the new like the muscle that they grafted had stopped and so you know i had like a phone number that was on my cast that was the doctor to be able to like call and they would immediately rush me into surgery and like try with my other lat muscle if it failed. But thankfully like it didn't. And, um, you know, the surgery, while it was a long recovery, like I now have, you know, a below the knee prosthesis and I still have my knee. And so all of that was like incredibly, incredibly lucky. The procedure works. You realize obviously at this point that you're going to be an amputee, where are you in your head with that piece of it, the loss? So I don't even think, I think I was just at this point so happy to be alive, like that I wasn't even worried about it. I was like, I think, I don't know anything. At this point, I don't think I'd ever even met an amputee. I was like, I don't know what the results of that are. And actually, I think like a couple, probably five days after my that big surgery, once they were pretty sure everything was going to take, I went to this support group at, at UW, which um, was an amputee support group. And so, you know, that support group, I think that was my first introduction and probably one of the best introductions you could have about, you know, what, what kind of was going to be the path ahead of me. And there was a, there still is a, any, a, guy in that group named Michael, who is 70 something years old. He almost always wears a tie dye shirt and he's a ski instructor. And he, he's been an amputee for like 20 something years. And he was a ski instructor before he was, you know, before he had an amputation and he, he is a ski instructor after, and he can ski on one leg, he can ski on two legs. He like, he teaches other people how to ski. And I thought to myself like, well, okay, if he can ski, then I can probably do a lot of things you know, he's like both 70 and he has one leg. So I think I'm probably going to be okay. Uh, and that was like extremely helpful. And he had this attitude that was just, look, 
it's not going to be the same as when you used to do it. But like, if you want to do something bad enough, we can figure out a way to do it. And, you know, we'll find technology or we'll build something or we'll do it. His nickname in the group is MacGyver because he has all of these like contraptions that he's built to do various activities and he'll like help other people um, you know, do those things. And so uh, I, you know, a combination of, of him and just the rest of the support group kind of taught me or, and made me feel like, okay, it's probably going to be different. There's going to be a new normal, but I'm going to be able to still live a great life. So MacGyver gives you a great example and a sense of hope, and this group does. You're discharged from the hospital. Share with me the process of going home and the months that followed. Yeah, so we rented an apartment uh, in Seattle. and My parents moved in with me for three months or so. Um, and the first probably month of that, I was basically in bed or on the couch. Um, like I couldn't, I was still in a lot of pain and I had the normal pain from having a surgery. And then I had nerve pain both in my leg and in my hand where like you think that, you know, I think that my toes were moving or something when I don't have to toes or I think that my, you know, fingers were moving when they weren't really because just it's like misfired signals. And I'd go and do physical therapy and do hand therapy. And so it was this constant shuttle between the hospital and uh, this apartment kind of back and forth for a couple of months. And the process of the senses returning to your hand, can you explain that to the listeners? Yeah. So the, <laughs> the, when nerves start to regenerate, um, it's just pain. like the first thing that comes back is pain. So like if anything touches it, if like the wind blows on it the wrong way, like you just get extreme pain and that's the only signal that's firing. And so it's a good thing. You're happy because you're like, Hey, that means the surgery worked and I'm going to eventually feel again. But at the same time, like it's really painful. And I guess nerves regenerated about an inch a month. And so they said, okay, in six months, you'll know whether or not it, you know, it worked, which is kind of a funny thing. And so when it did work, I was excited. But then also there's another month or so of just like not feeling great. Did you experience any depression during during this period? Not during this period. It's kind of, and the, the depression I think is like really specific where it's not that I was sad. Like I was definitely depressed, but I wasn't sad. I just, you have to like, or I had to, as a coping mechanism, like not care about a lot of things. Like you are very uncomfortable, like bleeding everywhere. Like you're just, everything's kind of not great. And I just became very desensitized to like discomfort and was kind of okay with it. Do you remember the first time you sort of walked in an independent freeway using the prosthetics? You're no longer healing. You're no longer in pain, but you sort of get back to you. Yeah, I, um, you know, I'd walked on it before and stuff in PT at the process office and with crutches. But I think the time at which I felt really free is when I went on my first kind of work trip. I was actually back in Europe um, where I had been right before the, the attack. And I was like walking around Berlin alone and no crutches. And I was like, wow, this is... Like, this is exactly what I was doing before 
I had been attacked and this like could not feel any better. Like there's just such a euphoric feeling of feeling normal again. Like even if the normal is different, you're like, wow, I, I made it through that. Like this is this is where I was before and now I'm back even in the exact same city. And so it just, it felt really good. Where are you in the process of healing and acceptance today? My hand is pretty much back to normal. You know, I still have a set of like exercises and things I think I'll always do to you know, get it better and better. And I wear a, a prosthetic every day and can walk around and pretty active. Um, I have been stand up paddleboarding a couple of times in the exact same place where I was attacked by a shark. I think there's increasingly like more activity that I want to do. And so I continue to do physical therapy and continue to work on, for example, I can't run. So at some point I'd like to be able to run, even though I didn't really run that much before, just so that way I can feel like I can, um, or I'd like to ski again. I used to ski a lot. And so those are the kinds of things where, you know, this next year or maybe the year after it'll be a, a long process to be able to get there. So I'm mostly back to normal, but you know, normal is, is different. Can you share the first experience back in the water? Yeah, it was... Um, it's the same beach, right? Yeah, it's the same beach. And um, I went with my dad. And I don't think he'd really been in the water since then either. We immediately, as we get out there, we see this huge pot of dolphins. And, you know, they're all... There's hundreds of them and they're going past your board and... Then we saw this massive manta ray that was right on the surface and it kind of was like circling around my board and it was this beautiful clear day and, and uh, it just like it, it felt it felt really, really good. Like I had overcome this this thing and it wasn't so much a fear as it was like the worry that I would never be able to stand on a paddleboard again or I'd never be able to like have that great experience in the ocean. And some of the search and rescue and the people who were there and saved your life that day were with you. Is that right? Yeah. So they, they were all, the joke was that like, I couldn't go into the water without, you know, a full, full bodyguard posse of all of these guys. So they, you know, they came with me and then uh, that day. And then over the next couple of days, they were like helping me learn how to surf again. They were like helping me, um, you know, like with everything like they, they were awesome. And so, and I also got to know the guys better who I, I didn't know before um, and have been able to become friends with them and have a bond that's, you know, it's the, it's the bond of someone who saved your life where you're forever thankful and will do anything to help them. And no fear of sharks that day, no fear of an attack. I'm a numbers guy. And so when I had these couple of months uh, of not doing anything in the apartment, I was doing a lot of research on what the probability of a shark attack was. And I concluded that if I was going to be afraid of being attacked by a shark again, I needed to be afraid of pretty much everything else in my life. And so I, I decided not to do that. And, and so one example is like last year, there were 66 people in the world who were attacked by a shark, what they call unprovoked shark attacks. Um, 
and there were 70 something people who died while taking a selfie. So if I'm going to be afraid of shark attacks, I like can't take selfies, right? Like it's like, there's like an extreme, <laughs> there's a really extreme level and like extreme unlikelihood that I like don't, I don't fear it because then I'd have to fear everything else. You know, way more likely things are dying in a car accident or an airplane or even being struck by lightning is like four times more likely. So um, yeah, I, I don't want to live my life in fear of everything. So therefore I can't live my life in fear of a shark attack. Were the people with you nervous going back in the water? My dad was. I think my dad is still afraid of, of the water. I think he, from what I've been told, he will, he will only go paddleboarding with me. <laughs> he, like, he, and I don't think it's because he thinks that there's a shark that's going to attack him. I think it's because it brings up memories of that day that are just not pleasant, and that's not what he wants to do. And going back to the day of the attack, I think you said that there was video or a sighting near that time. Is that correct? Yeah. So 30 minutes before there were two guys spearfishing at the beach, kind of the cove that's over uh, to the left, the one that we were actually paddling to. And they saw two uh, tiger sharks and one of them was kind of behaving erratically. And so uh, they're actually friends with one of the guys who saved my life. And they, through that, I ended up actually getting a video of it. But it's this just monster of a shark. When my leg was in its mouth, like the, it's surprisingly wide head. Like it's probably a three foot wide jaw, um, which when you look at these animals, like in pictures, it's sort of like hard to tell exactly how massive they are. Now, back in your life, you're in Germany, you're back on a paddleboard in Hawaii. Do you experience the world differently as an amputee as you did before? Certainly. I think there's this like implicit tax. Um, I actually, I felt it even more. I was in a wheelchair for eight, eight or nine months and I felt it even more in the wheelchair, but I still feel it you know, walking around with a prosthesis where there's just everything is harder. And so there's this constant cognitive tax, like tax when you're trying to do anything. Um, like in the wheelchair, you feel it when you go somewhere and there's stairs and there's no way to get in without stairs. And you're like, well, that's not going to happen. Um, like I remember I was in New York City when I was in a wheelchair and I was just trying to find somewhere to eat. I had, my flight had just landed. And so I'm like, you know, going by restaurant after restaurant that like doesn't have an entrance or a ramp. And you're just like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to eat or like, and then it, what would be both in the wheelchair and when you're walking on the prosthesis, what would be like totally fine to just like walk 15 minutes or whatever, especially early on, it was like, okay, well it hurts to walk 15 minutes. And so I can really only walk like 10 minutes or if I get to 15 minutes, you know, that's fine. But if I go to 20, then my leg is going to have like these sores. And if I have sores then I can't walk the next day. And so you're constantly in this negotiation of like, can my body, handle these things that used to be so easy, like walking around for 20 minutes. And I think there's a funny thing that happens. I found it more in a wheelchair, but I still get it now where people assume if you're physically disabled, that you're also mentally disabled. Like they talk to you really slowly and like, like, Oh, you're disabled. And you're like, okay, this is I'm, like, my brain works fine. Um, and so I think there's a, there's also a tax in the way that people treat you where they assume it's, it's hard. It's not really fair to them, but like they assume you can't do anything when 
you're like, there is some stuff I can do and there's other stuff that's hard. And there's no way that they would know. There's no way I would have known before I was disabled, like what those things are. And when I meet other people, even if they're amputees, they have very different restrictions and very different things. And how do you deal with the experience of people experiencing you differently, the world experiencing you differently, those encounters? What does that feel like to be on the receiving end of that? I think it depends. I, it can be frustrating. Um, but at the same time, I have to remind myself of like, well, are they, are they doing that out of like malice? Like definitely not. Um, they just like don't know. And so I, I don't like get mad at anyone in particular. It's just like you, this is the new normal. Like this is the reality and I have to come to peace with that. There's a Stephen Hawking, quote that I like, which is something along the lines of like, for people who are disabled, you shouldn't blame the world. Like that's not going to do anything for you. It's not going to fix the problem. Um, but you should try to focus on things and activities you can do where you're not actually disabled. Um, and, you know, for him, like he can hardly talk and, uh, you know, for him, he could, but he was this brilliant physicist and could do physics. And so for me, I'm not going to become like an Olympic runner, <laughs> but there's other activities I can do that it, it doesn't make a difference. And so I should focus on those. I, and I imagine everyone listening to this, am in awe of your optimism, of your gratitude. I imagine there are many people that would, I think, be crushed by something like this, kind of a why me. So I want to read back to you a letter or an email that you wrote. Share that because I, I think it just speaks to that so beautifully. You said, Aloha. Today I will be traveling to Seattle to the University of Washington for the next phase of treatment. I expect to have full use of my arm and hand within the next six months. The next phase of my recovery will be getting fitted and learning to use prosthetics for my right leg. I want to thank you. And you go on to thank countless people by name, security teams, doctors, EMTs. And you also say that the medical teams performed miracles on your body. You say you've been touched and your family has been touched, your hearts in many ways that you could have never imagined. And as I enter this next phase of my recovery, you should all know that I feel so incredibly fortunate to be alive and have all of my family with me. I know that all your thoughts and prayers will carry me through. The Ohana spirit is alive and well. Thank you all, David. How many days after the attack did you write that letter? So that, that was the day that I was leaving Queens. So I think it was a week, so like seven days after. Where do you think your sense of optimism comes from? Where does that piece of you come from? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I think part of it definitely comes from my parents. I think part of it also comes from, yeah, let me think about that. I, I think I've just found in life that gratitude can be such a great anecdote to bad things happening. Like you can look at anything and, and be mad about it, but at the same time, you can just like acknowledge that it is. And then you can acknowledge the things that are, that are positive. Like if you look at the shark attack, like I definitely should have died. And so if you look at the number of like, crazy improbable things that had to happen for me not to die then this is actually like 
I'm amazingly lucky. If you only focus on the fact that I was attacked by a shark, I'm amazingly unlucky. And so I can choose, like I have a choice. Do I like see my life as incredibly unlucky or as incredibly lucky? And that's, that's a choice of how you like frame everything about how you talk about everything, about how you think about everything. And if you find yourself kind of like in these constant loops of negativity, like, you know, it's, this sounds so cliche, but you sort of, the universe will probably like continue to treat you negatively. <laughs> like if you're always in a bad mood and you're like mean to other people, they're probably not going to treat you as well. And so you get this, this reflexivity of life where if you are positive and you think you can do it and you, it's not about being like naive. Oh, I think I can do everything. It's like realistically, like try to find the things that you, you do actually believe in that you do think are great. And you focus on those. There's something about the way that other people react to that where it just works way better. When people learn about the attack or when people ask about your leg and you share this story, what is the reaction? So a funny story happened to me. I'd only been out of the hospital for a couple of weeks and I'm in this apartment building and I'm going up to like the communal roof deck of this building. And there's a guy in the, um, in the elevator with me and uh, he's talking to like one of his friends and he'd broken his wrist. And so his friend was like, dude, what happened to your wrist? And he was like, oh, got attacked by a shark. And the guy's like, oh, that's so funny. And I turn around and I'm in a wheelchair. My leg is missing. My arm's in a cast. And I'm like, look very sick. And I turn around and I go, no way, me too. And the guy's face was just like devastated. Like he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like I, I actually, I was drunk and I punched a wall. And you're like, okay, yeah. Like, and so I think when you go to a bar and you say that like you were attacked by a shark, they like equate me to the guy who got drunk and punched a wall. Do you think this changed your relationship with your dad? Definitely. Like, I think it made it stronger. I think, I think it's not until you're tested by things in life and you're able to handle them when other people aren't that you can be super thankful for the things that your parents did for you or the other experiences in your life that made you able to handle them. Um, and I think, like, I just assume that my parents were, you know, normal parents. And I think now that I've gone through this thing, I'm like, wow, like, these things that came really naturally to me are because my parents like taught me to be this way and raised me this way. And I'm super lucky for that. And I think that gives me tons of respect for my parents. How has it changed you as a person? Well, there's certainly this kind of mental and physical task, like tax in everything that I do. And I think that's made a lot of things harder. I think it's also made it so that way I think about my time differently like I think before the shark attack, the idea of dying was so far in the future and so unrealistic that I would never make a statement like, well, this isn't really something I want to spend my time on because, you know, you never know if you're going to die. Like, and now I, like, I'm, I'm not actually saying that out loud, but I'm thinking in my head, okay, like, is, is this how I want to spend my time? If I know that, you know, at any point I could die or do I want to spend my time in this other way? Um, where I think it'll be either more fulfilling or more exciting, or I'll get to spend time with the people I love or in some place I've never been or whatever it is. And so I think I'm definitely more seeking those things. Um, and probably over time that might change, but I think like at this point I live life a lot like it, you know, could end at any moment. Well, thank you. Thank you for 
this interview, we're going to do something fun called rapid fire. But first, I just want to acknowledge I am so I am so inspired by your sense of optimism and gratitude and grace. Um, it's really cool. And, and I'm excited for, for other people to experience that as well. So that said, we're going to end with a little something called rapid fire. And I'm just going to fire off some questions and then you tell me whatever comes to your mind. You game? Game. Favorite song? Uh, probably, probably any of the Radiohead ones. <laughs> Love it. Favorite place? Still Hawaii. Cocktail or cold beer? Cocktail. The thing you are most proud of? Uh, I'm too modest to be proud of anything. Surviving a shark attack. Sure, I, th- I think I think that w- I didn't do a lot for that. Biggest pet peeve? Lack of ramps in restaurants. Best childhood memory? Uh, the first time I went surfing. Greatest words of wisdom. It takes a lifetime to build a reputation and only one bad decision to destroy it. Good one. Not sure if you're a social media person, but if people are interested in following you, um, where can they find you? I'm not really a social media person, but I have a uh, an Instagram that's David M. Bird. All right. Well, thank you again, David. It was such a pleasure. And like I said, so much takeaway for me and I know for everyone who listens. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Have Have a a good one. All right. Bye. Today's conversation with David supports the Footloose Sailing Association. They are a fully volunteer run organization in Seattle, creating opportunities to sail to people of all disabilities. Their motto is leave your disability at the dock, and they create empowering and healing experiences on the water for a wide range of people, including stroke survivors, people with multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, head injuries, and learning disabilities. David told us the first time he witnessed Footloose in action, he saw a quadriplegic with a mouthpiece. He was sailing and could blow on the mouthpiece to move the boat in one direction and suck to move it in another. How cool is that? To learn more, you can find them at footloosedisabledsailing.org. That's footloosedisabledsailing.org. Thank you for making the time to listen, and we hope you'll consider rating and reviewing the podcast. Additionally, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com and let us know any thoughts or feedback you have on the show. And... Any ideas you have for someone who would make a great guest on All the Wiser? Again, that's hello at allthewiserpodcast.com, and we would really love to hear your thoughts. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.